0: We're gonna keep going. We've been looking at Luke. I'm trying to just figure myself out here. Luke, if you've been coming for the last few weeks, um, the team here have been digging through the book of Luke, okay, and using it like as a platform um, to like share some thoughts and wrestle with some of what Luke's writing. I just wanna make it really clear, like the gospels are trying to tell us something, straight up, like they're just not there for entertainment. They're at the front of the New Testament for a reason. All four of the Gospels are really, really invested in making sure that we understand that Jesus Christ is Lord over all things. It's true. That's the whole purpose of the Gospels. Unapologetically, the authors of these Gospels are going painstakingly, remembering the story, detailing, telling us, describing for us, complimenting each other to tell us that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, was the King of the world, and what He accomplished on the cross, and what He accomplished in His life, and what He said mattered. I just don't think Jesus said flippant things. I reckon Jesus was pretty measured in what He said, and so what He says matters, and as we come to the accounts, and we look at what's being recorded, we want to keep that in the back of our mind, okay? We want to keep that in the back of our mind always, that like they're actually trying to tell us something, and they're pointing toward something, and we want to remember that. Today, I'm just going to be touching on a really short little scripture and using that as more of a... Um, 30,000 foot overview than it is about detail, okay? And so hopefully today um, you'll stick with me, a little bit of theology in there and a bit of a journey to take, but the purpose, why I'm trying to share what I'm trying to share today, just so you know, the end goal is, we're talking about real rest, and I hope that somehow in all the words I use will point to the fact that Jesus is our rest, that's good news, Um, but that Um, there'll be certain practices and certain rhythms that'll be really important for you and for us as the people of God to embody that. Um, You know, even showing up on a Sunday is a great way of you being countercultural and being a little radical and saying, hey, I'm going to put my trust in this God thing and pattern your life after that. There's going to be certain rhythms and practices that I'm not going to go into today. Is that all right? I I hope that I mean, we could do a five-part series on this. I hope that you'll take away from today and be able to sort of maybe think about what it is that you do to um, remember that Jesus is on the throne um, and what that looks like. Certainly, coming together as a community of God's people weekly is a rhythm that you're practicing who you're becoming, which is a, a child of God, in the way you worship and you give offering and sacrifice of time. There, there are things you're doing that go against the world's structure, by just showing up. But there are other ways that will be really important for you to wrestle with. I'm not going to name today. I'm just going to be straight up front, show my hand. I'm not going through practices today. And I'm not even going to be drilling down deeply into Sabbath in terms of how that looks and what that what that looks like. I, I'm going to be just, just touching on it based on a scripture um, in Luke 6 where Jesus talks about being Lord of the Sabbath. And I just want to name the bigger picture there, if that's all right. But we're talking about real rest and... Uh, Hey, could all do a little bit more rest, eh? Don't you reckon? Feel <laughs> a little weary? Um, I can't get into it right now, but I do. Can I just? oh just let's just name it for what it is. I just want to be really clear. Like, there are people in our community here that are grieving, um, and I just want to be upfront about that. There's people you're sitting next to who are grieving, the loss of a loved one, the loss of a relationship. Um, they might be grieving just life at the moment, and I just want to be really clear and name it, put it on the shelf and just be explicit that everything I say today isn't just going to be flippant and here's the easy answer. I'm going to be really clear, there are people grieving amongst us today, okay? Um, life has been hard for some people. There are people sitting in our midst right now who don't know where their next paycheck's coming from. It's not all prosperity gospel for them. It's hard. Like Life is challenging. There are people here who are trying to make sense of where to go next and how to make decisions and and there is, there is a reality to our existence in this world. Amen? Is that fair to just name so that we can just make that clear and just recognize that so that we understand that that's a reality, even as we journey through the Word today? Just wanted to be really clear. And what I'm sharing about myself here is not really grieving or any of that stuff. It's And I don't want it to be flippant. So I don't want to say what I'm sharing minimizes what people are, are facing, um, but, you know, I think we could all do with a bit more rest, no matter what we're facing, eh? We live in a restless world, don't we? Restless society, restless lives, complex at times. I think, is it fair to say that, does life impact you? Or is it just me? <laughs> d- d- does stuff outside of you impact you sometimes? And disrupt that kind of rest and make it hard at times? Um, do you know, life happens and impacts us, and I think, especially when there's uncertainty. Have you ever lived in uncertainty before? I love times of certainty, I love knowing where my paycheck's coming from, I love knowing what job I'm going to that day, I love knowing what's happening tonight at 6pm, I like things that are certain, and it's okay to have certainty and praise God for things that are certain and are rhythmatic. But how many of you know, sometimes there's uncertainties in life, <laughs> anomalies, things that happen, things that impact us, that can make things a little challenging. And to be honest with you, I already named a few things, but even for some in our community, it'll be, where's my food coming from? How am I going to afford the gas for my car? How am I going to afford a car? How am I going to be a Christian in today's really complex world? How do I be faithful follower of Jesus? and? Um, Am I going to keep my job? Do you know we're living more and more in a world where just by being a Christian, you may not have a job. I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news. We like to disciple ourselves towards saying, hey, we're going to take dominion and we're going to be over all these things. We also need to understand that times may come where you might lose your job because you believe in Jesus. I'm sorry. It's just the way it is. I, I wish I could tell you it's not the case. But there will be uncertainty. Uncertainties happen things change, it can be a challenge. Um, Uncertainty is true for all of us, I know for me personally, just the last few years, been pretty uncertain, I'm not going to lie, it's been a pretty interesting ride. Um, Just for those that don't know me, I was a pastor here for about 10 years, love being part of the Father's House Church, it's been great and I recognise that not a lot of you know me because this, the, the Context of this congregation has changed, and there's so many new faces, and it's awesome. So I don't just assume that people know who I am. But in 2019, I, the word of the Lord came to me. It was pretty obvious to Ashley and I, my wife. Um, Mid 2019, we began to just really wrestle this this unsettledness, this 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 thing that was going on. We couldn't quite name it, but then the word of the Lord came, and it was that we were to transition from our role um, as pastors in Bon Accord after a five-year extent, doing our best to be faithful and serving God in that place. Uh, Nothing had happened, there was no sin, there was no bad stuff, there was just a sense that God was moving and it was unsettling. It was a little scary, to be honest. Scary because, how many of you know, there was security in like a role? Um, There was, and it was a good role, it wasn't like bad, everything was going really well. Like, it was healthy. I feel like our church congregation had grown to almost a hundred people, and in this tiny community, God was doing a great work, and it just felt like this sense of, like, the time was done for us, and it was like, wow, okay, and we had to wrestle through that, and so we began to just, like, pray through that, and the Word of the Lord came, and and part of my concern was that, like, I love Pastor Greg, and I didn't want to ditch him. Like, I didn't want to ditch out and be like, sucks to be you, man. Like, we're leaving. Because at that time, there was some changes happening. COVID um, came early 2020 and disrupted so many things. That was an uncertainty. And there was all kinds of stuff going. But for Ashley and I, we were already in transition. So it had nothing to do with the disruption of COVID. It was that, like, God was preparing us. And so it was a really kind of interesting time. But I heard from God, and God said to me really clearly... um, don't worry, trust me because I'm going to build the team around Pastor Greg and, and and the team that he needs to go forward into what I'm calling them to do as the Father's house. It was really clear. And then that was confirmed one day when Ashley and I, um, when we were at this um, church event one day and I was sitting up the back and God gave me this vision of um, me and Ashley walking off a train at a train stop. It was bizarre. It came out of nowhere. I was in prayer, and we we're just talking, and I had this picture, and I was just like, really? Like, it was kind of like, and it, and it felt lonely a little bit as well, because it was like, it wasn't exciting, but it was a moment of like, trusting God. It was like, coming off the train, you're in transition, and then God was answering the concerns that I had about what it meant to leave, that it had nothing to do with anyone other than the fact that God was going to be doing a work. I had to trust that. And so after a little process of that, it meant stepping into levels of uncertainty. Levels of uncertainty to which we're still in today. Um, And that's not for you to feel sorry for me, this is the call the cross-shaped life God has invited Ashley and I to be on. Um, And I also know that I don't serve man or man's agenda. If I'm to serve God, I I better learn what it means to be faithful and obedient to God when when He speaks, amen? It's probably a good way to go, and not always easy, though, is it, hey? Um, But look, I didn't know what that journey would look like, but last week, after the 11 a.m. service, if you were here, you would have seen some really cool prayer time. It was special, hey? And part of that was, for me, this beautiful confirmation that after three and a half years, there was this almost like this confirming upon the sort of the next team, the next people, and, and God has truly done a work in our midst, would you agree? through all the challenges through everything that's going on God is restoring and building health and he is equipping people and we have these amazing ministries taking place like God is doing a work here and sometimes it's just like get out of the way and let God do God and I know just to be honest that was some of the feeling for Ashley and I it was just like it was time to switch away but how many of you know when you when you when you step out of securities when you step out of you know roles or ways of doing, and and you take a new journey, how many of you know that can bring up uncertainties? You know what I'm talking about, because you've all been there. I'm just using me as a story right now, but you know, because you've all faced times of uncertainty. For me, it was kind of like a wilderness, Um, not in a bad way where, like, I'm out to lunch and I'm so lost. Wilderness is in a transition from something to something else. And how many of you know what happens in wilderness? You get tested. Did you know that? When when you're in uncertainty, you get tested, and it's actually not a bad thing. I've been tested for the last three years, I'm not gonna lie, and I've failed sometimes, like really bad, like miserably, not as in like I've gone and done crazy stuff, but like failed as in my reliance on God hasn't always been there. Because I was pretty used to ways of doing and thinking and being, I had a security in my income, I had a security in a role, and now I'm living paycheck to paycheck, I don't even know where that's coming from sometimes. I've done so many different jobs, it's not even funny, it's been so random, but God has been so good, He's taken me out into the community, into places of brokenness, places that I thought I knew existed and I knew all about, but, in, but God brought me to be present to them. I spent some time at Oak Hill Ranch, if you know Oak Hill Ranch, working with the young people as a child and youth care worker, um, unfortunately I lost my vehicle because of that, and... Uh, that was the moment where i said i'm out of here um it got trashed um one night and then after that i started i worked with jesse's house for a little while just working in the domestic violence shelter just in their transitional time too just supporting them working with clients doing night shifts day shifts and it was awesome just to be exposed and to just to bring ministry to that place it was beautiful and then um, working with victim services the last two years has been wow like a, it's like opening like like removing the sheet over our city and seeing what's really going on. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was really interesting to just get get eyes to see what's really taking place and to be present to people in different challenging situations. Um, and you know what? I say all that to say, there's just been a bit of a season of unknown. <laughs> it's, uh, I laugh because it's humorous, but it has been. It's been, the last couple of years have been a real season of unknown. But, uh, and now raising a couple of preteen kids trying to be present to God's will for our life as a family um, and that's been right and good because it's been God's journey. But how many of you know that's created a little bit of anxiety sometimes, a little bit of stress, a um, little bit of uncertainty can disrupt the internal world? Have you ever had your internal world disrupted before? Oh good, it's not just me. <laughs> I've heard someone say stress comes when you don't feel like you have the internal capacity to deal with the external demands of life. Now, it's actually an okay place to be in, and I'll tell you why, because I think, when, when I think I have it all together and I can manage things, then I can be in control and I can deal with stuff, but more and more and increasingly, increasingly, we're living not just in complicated situations, we're living in complex situations. Complicated situation would be an incident that happens that feels a little stressful and demanding. Complex means that thing impacts, that thing impacts, that thing impacts, that thing impacts, that thing thing which impacts that, and they're all connected. That's complex. Global food chain supplies, war in Ukraine, gas prices. You hear it. That's a complex environment that impacts and creates uncertainties. Um, Living in complicated lives can create a sense of being a bit overwhelmed at times, see? And, and can cause some internal disruption. And that can be hard. You've all been stressed before, haven't you, hey? Can you identify? When well, you don't feel like you have what, what is required internal to meet the demands of the external and that you find sometimes the external demands are actually setting your agenda are actually setting the agenda for your emotions, for your well-being, for your decisions, because the external is so demanding. Have you found that before? It's hard to have that inner peace sometimes, isn't it, eh? Disrupted. Um, That's been the journey for me the last three years, and I know you've all been on your own journeys too, Um, and I wish we could hear from you all, I really do. I really wish you could all get up here, share testimony, and, and tell us what that's been like and what's going on. So I can only use myself right now with the time I've got. And again, even that, it's not the deep levels of grief some of you have faced, it's just my own little journey, because I went from one job and I'm working out what's next, still not clear. Ashley and I are coming toward the end of that and we have some really big things that we're discerning and working out what's next and right and good, but we're not rushing into that. But all this has taught me that my ultimate rest, and this is the lesson that I've had to learn, my ultimate rest, because it is so complex and disruptive, I'm learning, comes from God. <laughs> Sorry to give you the simple answer. And it's just the way it is. It's a lesson that I've learned in these last three years that where I, I, I can no longer just lean on my own understandings. Remember Proverbs? Remember the, the, the Bible verse that says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, all your decisions, all your will, all your emotions, your trust in God, And you don't lean on your own understandings. My own understandings are so deeply formed in me. They're part of my sinful, before Christ nature, ways of thinking, seeing, doing that are so profoundly strong. And they're there. And I'm told to trust in God. Lean not on my own understanding, but in all my ways. Acknowledge God. And what? He'll make your path straight. So part of wilderness, part of that testing, part of that living in uncertainty, part of the unknown is actually the humility to say, I'm being shown where I put my trust. Because where I put my trust in a season before, where I was maybe living in sin or living away from God, I'm now being shown what it means to rely wholeheartedly on God, not because God's awful or mean, because God is this terrible thing, being, it's that in brokenness and in the uncertainties, which I'm not saying God causes, but in those things, God shows up and walks with us to show us where we need freedom. Because sin keeps us in bondage. Ways of thinking, doing, and being can actually keep us in prison, and when we go on a new season where we've, we've leaned in on things that God has done, but He's showing us a new way, we walk away from our identities in the world and we say, okay, God, how do I trust You? Isn't that the journey? That's the journey of our Christian walk, is learning new patterns of thinking and seeing and doing that relies on God as the King. And that's the journey we're taking One of the things that we need to realize, I think, what I've needed to realize is that, like, the reason you feel so stressed out and disrupted and stuff in that internal reality is simply because there's a part of you that actually longs for rest. You want it. You look for it in all kinds of things, holidays and TVs and whatever, all not evil or wrong when rightly ordered under God's creation, rightly ordered in joy but when those things become the way or the means in which we try and find rest because the internal is so disrupted, I'm, go- I'm sorry to tell you it's not going to fulfill you. Um, it's just a hard thing. But what you want to identify is that deeper longing for rest. Stop focusing on the behavior and look at that deeper longing for rest because it's actually part of who you were created to be. Did you know that? Do you know that you and I were created for rest? you see it as you sleep. I mean, how many of you know you need to sleep? You go a couple of days without sleep, man, you're hallucinating. (laughs) I wouldn't know, but apparently, after three days of not sleeping, you begin to hallucinate. You have a parasympathetic system in your body that is an involuntary system. Your involuntary system, you can't control. You hold your breath for too long right now, you might pass out, but your involuntary system kicks in and you start you're breathing again, and your heart's pumping again, like, you're good. Your involuntary system exists, because when you're g- in your fight, flight, or freeze response, man, your adrenaline pumps, then your involuntary system kicks in so that you can rest and restore. Even the way your physio- like your physical being was made was actually to pattern itself after rest. I'll never forget, just a fight-flight-freeze story, it's nothing to do with my sermon, but I think I've told you this before, but I was laying in bed one night, it was like two in the morning, and I heard this bang, crash. Now, I'm short, and I've had to defend myself a lot growing up, before I was a Christian, I I had to look after myself, and so when those things happen, my fight kicks in, I'm, I'm, I'm a fighter, if I get cornered, I will be aggressive. I heard this noise at two in the morning, I jump out of bed, sorry for the image, I wear boxer shorts to bed. I jump up and I jump out of my bed and I said, "Get out of my house!" And I ran down the hallway, two in the morning. Kids are asleep. I'm flicking lights on. I ran into every room with my fists up, "Get out!" Screaming, adrenaline, fight, ready. I would have ripped someone's neck open. Like I, <laughs> I was like intense. And after ten minutes of running through every room in the house and waking up everyone in Notre Dame Morinville. I I was just like, what? And I was freaking out. I walked into the bathroom (laughs) and we had little kids. And so we had like a a toy bin for like the bath toys and they're on suction cups and they stick to the wall. So the, the suction cups had come off and all the toys crashed into the bathtub. So I woke up ready to kill Mr. Burglar and rip his head off. And it was the toys. But I tell you what, that was like that adrenaline, the fight response. I was wired. I was ready to give her, man. And then after that, you know, the headache kicks in and your heart's pounding and you start like, oh, feeling like jelly. That's the fight, flight or freeze response. That's your involuntary system kicking in because it's given you an exertion of adrenaline. Now you need to chill out. Rest is actually part of your, your physical makeup. But it's also embedded in creation. Did you know that? You long for rest because it's embedded in creation. What I love about the creation story in Genesis is it just, it tells us a story. Now, I know I talk about Genesis a lot, but the Genesis account, we read it as an audience in modern Western civilization, but the original audience who would have read this, this was written for a people to understand who they were because they didn't know rest. Do anyone know who the original audience was? Say that again. Almost. Oh, yeah, someone said Moses. Yeah, there's this period of slavery. So Egypt, Egypt was this world-dominating power. The Israelites had gone into slavery and had been there generations. Um, they, were, they were captive to slaves. Now, it's believed that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. There's a lot of conversation around that. It doesn't really matter for our purposes. A great man named Tremper Longman III, he's a great scholar, he wrote that actually um, Moses likely wrote The first five books of the Bible, not all of them, but mostly part, like, big chunks of the first five books of the Bible. So what I find interesting about that is the fact that, like, if it's true, then the people who are reading this for the first time are people who had no sense of who they were. You remember, the Israelites were kept in slavery. Generations, man. They weren't allowed to worship God. They weren't allowed to rest in God. They learned ways of thinking and doing and believing about themselves. How many of you know slavery is very, would be very formative to your sense of self? Would you agree? Now, I've never been in physical slavery before in the same way. I've been in bondage to sin and I can use that as a metaphor and I think, I hope you will see the connections. Understand slavery as a metaphor too. But these guys are a physical slave people for generations with no sense of self. And in Egyptian culture, they worshipped animals. Did you know that? They had cats, dogs, alligators. They worshipped the moon, the sun. They worshipped all these created things. And Pharaoh was God. And so they spent generations working, slavering, toil. How many of you know that, that dehumanization of not authentically living as the human God creates you to be, that begins to embed in, in the, the cultural narrative who you are as a people. You're less than. You're nobody you, you don't deserve life. Cats are more important than you. The sun and the moon are more important than you. You have no place. you have no rightful contribution to society. You are purely here to work. And this was the this was the people who uh, Moses, orates, and tells the story of who they really are. And why I'm saying this is I just want us to capture the fact that this idea of rest, this notion of rest is actually embedded in God's design and creation. And it's really cool to recognize that the first people hearing this have just come out of a pretty intense, harsh, generational season of being in slavery. They got some questions. Who are we? What are we about? Do you think they might be asking, where's our stuff coming from? Where's our money, our reliance? They've come out of one space and now they're moving toward a promised land, but now they're in this wilderness space and they're trying to figure out who they are. But this Genesis account tells us a beautiful story, doesn't it? It speaks to human identity. It says that God, the God of Israel, is the God who actually created the moon and the stars. The thing that you have been uh, sort of witnessing a culture worship, and now by the mighty hand of God you've been set free, you're now being told that it was this God who actually created those things. And that the world was chaotic, and now God puts it in order. There was disruption, darkness, all kinds of disorder, and God, by his mighty hand, begins to sift and order and sort. And it's in this space that all of a sudden life flourishes. We see plants, we see animals, we see all this beauty and abundance being created by the hand of God. And it's into this space that we're told, and and imagine you're the original audience here with all the sets of questions. We're told that God created those things. And then we're told that God actually formed mankind out of the dust, raises them up, and crafts them as an image Understand that in ancient cultures, images were crafted and placed in the temple to reflect the gods. And they would have witnessed this in Egypt. They would have seen God worship and they would have realized they're down here and the cat's got a place and reflected to Pharaoh how good Pharaoh was. And now they're being told, no, God created you as a people distinct, handcrafted you out of the dust of the ground. Not only that, God breathes His what? His breath. His breath is His spirit. It's the same word in the Hebrew. And mankind comes alive because they have the presence of God. That's God's presence. God's very spirit, God's breath awakens us and to become alive. And so this, this slavery people who are left dehumanized are told that they're actually a created people. Created to dwell with the God of Israel, Yahweh. This incredible God, who by his mighty hand has set them free from captivity, they're now being shown that they're actually uniquely made. That they're not less than animals. They are created and they're created for a purpose to flourish as God's people, as his image bearers, to tell the world who God is. They have a purpose. And we're discovered that on the seventh day in this creation story, after that God had ordered everything and created mankind, God rests. I know we've talked about this before when I've preached, but it, you, know, you get this image of God just like, ah, He's done, kicks His legs up, everything's done. God did not need to rest, by, just so you know. God is self-existent. He is absolutely loosed from all limitations. God did not need to sit back and rest This idea of rest, the seven day in Hebrew, seven means completion. All the work was done. Everything was ordered. Humans are flourishing. They're given the spirit of God to come alive. They've been given beauty and abundance to exist in. And they've got intimacy with the one who created them. God, after doing all this work, begins his reign as the king. Not that he wasn't the king before, but the earth is his tabernacle. And God has ordered the chaos and placed things in order and created humankind and takes up residence as king of the earth. This is rest. This is what we're told rest is to a people who had never experienced rest, who had been slaves and now being told that actually they can rest. Why? Because God is on the throne. We all know the story that sin disrupted this order. Amen? If you're not a Christian today or you're new to church, sin might sound like a strange word. Sin is just a way that that helps us make sense of the world. It helps us recognize that there is brokenness and where that comes from. And what we're told in the Genesis account, that this sin comes and disrupts this beautiful order where we're alive under God's control, under God's rule, when I say control, not like monstrous control, He's given us free will to love and enjoy Him, but we realize that this thing comes in and re-narrates life and puts God's perfect order into disorder, Right? So, for those who are not familiar with Christian language, just understand when we talk about sin, we're talking about disorder. And what happens when things are disordered? God is taken off the throne. God is no longer placed in our worship on the throne where we exist under His rule and where we find peace. And so, again, the original audience are now getting a sense through the Genesis account of what went wrong and why that happens, but they're not left there. God actually gives them the Ten Commandments. And I need you to hear some of the Ten Commandments. For a people who have come out of slavery with patterns of doing and thinking and being and relying on their masters for where things would come because they had no other alternative. They were completely in bondage. And now a free people where they've learned through wilderness what it means to rely on God, some didn't get there. Their hearts were hardened. But for those that arrive, God brings the Ten Commandments not as a way to be, like, rigid and, and like, raw. you need to do all these things. It's to say, here's a social moral framework for you to be a distinct people that will bring health to who you are as God's people. And in observing these things, with God being first on the list, you will actually experience that created life. And one of the Ten Commandments is this thing called Sabbath. Everyone say Sabbath. Sabbath literally just means rest. It was an invitation by God for God's people to embody the creation story. Did you know that? It's actually a way of not just knowing it, but living it. Embodying this truth that God is on the throne and that you can find rest in God. We're in the midst of a world where that isn't happening. In the midst of a world where cultures in their pursuit of progression and progressiveness in advancing technology and building bigger empires and having larger armies and, and dominating the world. Israel, this little unknown people, are shown to be countercultural by embodying the living scripture to rest. So, rest becomes this formative pattern that they embody, that they're invited to take on so that they don't forget that God is king. Sabbath was a weekly thing. It was to practice on the seventh day this notion of rest. But more than just sitting around and resting, it was ceasing from all things and remembering God's agency. God's agency, which is countercultural because we love our own agency. We love to be in control. We love to manipulate outcomes. We love to try and deal with all the external stuff to, to minimize pain and maximize pleasure. So that the internal doesn't get disrupted and we we want to maintain that peace so we try and control. But that doesn't last, does it? And so this pattern of Sabbath was this recognition that out of this creation story, out of who they were called to be, they are now going to embody the text. But how many of you know the challenge with formative practices in any form is that when they lose sight of their meaning can actually become deforming? That might be a bit of a, a, a yard too far. What I mean by that is, how many of you know that something as, as rich and meaningful as the Sabbath for the people of God, which was given by God so that the people of God could be the people of God and remember God, when God is removed from that, how many of you know that's not good anymore? You can practice that all day long, but without God, it becomes a religious structure. How many of you know coming to church without proclaiming Jesus can be a religious structure? Taking communion without remembering what it's about can become a religious, any of it, because we're human, it's what we do. We're good at that, aren't we? Going back to being in control. So this Sabbath thing was a patterning after God, but the challenge is those things without their purpose being in God just become things that we do, Right? So understand that you and I were made for rest. Understand that sin actually disrupts rest. But how many of you know God was always pointing forward to a fulfillment of that rest so that you and I can be set free from bondage to sin and death, to the thing that actually stops us from experiencing rest in the midst of crazy worlds? Did you know that? God was always pointing forward. One of the things about religious kind of structures is, I heard someone say once, It doesn't matter how much you know the Scripture and how good you are at remembering the Scripture. If when you read the Scripture, it doesn't turn you more into Jesus, you're reading it wrong. That these things are actually meant to be forming us toward trust in God. That's their purpose. The purpose isn't for themselves. And this is the tension that we see when Jesus arrives on the scene, isn't it? This is what happens in Luke chapter 6 where we come to our text. You see, the Sabbath ritual had become over generations steeped with more and more and more laws, man-made laws. You couldn't even sneeze on the Sabbath for fear of work. All kinds of stuff was going on because the purpose of God forming Israel to be His people was to be the image bearers to reflect God to the nations. Did you know that? they actually had a purpose. It wasn't just to be Israel. It was actually to be a distinct people to declare the God of Yahweh through who they were becoming in these practices to the whole world. This is one of the things. And this is one of the things that got Jesus really worked up. If you read Luke, I think it's chapter 12, there's a story about the temple Do you guys remember this one, when Jesus actually gets a little bit upset? Upset is an easy way of saying it, but do you want to know what upset Him? It was that in the temple was the place where sin was dealt with and God's presence was to be made known, so that all the nations could come and know God. The temple had become another religious structure, void of any sense of worship, and the temple became a nationalistic symbol of their pride and their identity outside of God that the court of the Gentiles in the temple was the place where all the Gentiles of the known world could come and worship God. Did you know that? And so here they were with tables, selling birds and animals for the sacrifice and inflated prices, not only ripping off their brothers and sisters to make a gain, but what they had done is set it up in the court of the Gentiles. The whole purpose of them being and being formed towards God was so that they would bear witness to the world about the goodness of God. And in their own religious systems, that was no longer the case. And so they've set up these structures in the court of the Gentiles, and Jesus, uh, justice mattered to God. And not retributive justice, justice that sees the broken delivered. Justice that sets right what is wrong in the world. Jesus comes and sees this thing, and it must have just enraged him. And he flips the tables, and he says something really fascinating. You've turned... This is, you've turned this into a house of thieves. But didn't you know my house is a house of prayer for all the nations? Quoting directly from Isaiah 56. Quoted exactly. If you want to know what Jesus was thinking when he flipped tables, read Isaiah 56 and you'll get word for word what was in his mind. When it says, let the eunuchs come to me the one who is outside of the community, if they hold the Sabbath and they worship God, let them come. Do not withhold the foreigner from coming and worshiping me. If they they participate in the Sabbath and they, they trust in God, don't stop them from coming. And here in the court of the Gentiles, they have stopped them from coming. So recognize when Jesus comes, things like Sabbath and temple became these religious systems that actually sought sought out the good of the elites and the aristocracy. And there was nepotism and family rule and all this sort of stuff going on. And Jesus shows up. And you know what Jesus said? He said something pretty crazy. He says, I am the temple. He comes up and says, something greater than the temple is here. He shows up on the scene and he's already pointing to himself, the fulfillment of all these things. You see, the temple was to deal deal with sin so that they could find wholeness and worship God in his presence. And Sabbath was a patterning after who God created them to be to be countercultural. This is always pointing forward to an ultimate rest that would be fulfilled by the Messiah. So they're waiting. But in their waiting, they sort of went back to just being in control and doing things the way they wanted to do. And so Jesus shows up and says these crazy things, like, I am the temple. And because I'm not using my notes, I don't know where I am. <laughs> How's that? Are you following, or am I all over the place? Are you doing alright? Okay, good. I'm just checking, because <clears throat> I'm just talking now. Um, this is one of the things Jesus said in, in John chapter 2, verse 19. Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews said it took 46 years to build the temple. You're going to build it in three days? But you're speaking of the temple of His body. The Jews hated the fact that Jesus was now starting to embody the temple, and embody Sabbath, and was embodying these truths, He started making these crazy claims. Matthew 12, 6, 8, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is what? Lord of the Sabbath. Here is this crazy claim where Sabbath and temple became part of their national identity, and it became more about a nationalism than it did about a formative thing that helped them understand to be God's people and to bring everyone in. It became a a caste system. It became a way of keeping people on the out. It became religious elitism. And here's Jesus saying, I am the temple, something greater than the temples here. And he's pointing to himself and now he's embodying the truth of temple how many of you know because he will deal with sin once and for all The thing that has always separated the thing that disrupted our rest the thing that caused disorder Jesus is now starting to point to himself and say I am the one that will deal with all these things And not only that I'm Lord of the Sabbath I'm Lord of the rest. The rest that you were to have and experience in Sabbath now has become a religious structure. I'm going to come and fulfill this because God gave you the Sabbath. Not for Sabbath to give to man. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And this is why it's interesting in Luke chapter 6, if you've been following the Luke story, is Jesus has a moment where he's in his Galilean ministry. He's preaching, he's teaching, he's healing, he's he's doing all kinds of cool things because he's embodying the Isaiah scroll that he said that he's here to set captives free and recover sight to the blind. And now he's out doing it. He's actually showing the reality of this new kingdom into which all things will be fulfilled in him, pointing towards his sacrifice. And he gets to Luke chapter 6 and it says that he's out with his disciples picking grain on the Sabbath because they're hungry the Pharisees are like, ah, oh, oh, you're picking grain. That's work. You're working. And Jesus is like, listen, man. <laughs> he didn't say, listen, man. He <laughs> said something else. He, uh, he points to a scripture, which is really fascinating. We're not going to dig into They say, why are you doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath? And he's like, haven't you heard what David did when his companions were hungry? There's an Old Testament story where David had been anointed king. So he had rightful kingship. Now, he hadn't fulfilled his kingship yet, but he was anointed as king, right? And so he goes, there's this story where he goes and eats some of the table of presents bread because they're hungry and they need it. But because he was anointed as the king, he could do it. And here's Jesus saying, don't you know about the story with David? Jesus is already pointing the fact that he's been anointed the king. And he's actually Lord of these things. And they didn't like it, because it's a power struggle now. Now it's a a sense of like, what we have control over, you're challenging, so we're going to kill you. And that's exactly what happens, we know this. We know this. The point, what we're focusing on today is the fact that Jesus begins to point to himself, and this is the purpose of Luke, it's the purpose of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, is to tell us this wonderful story that Jesus has come to fulfill. So now we have Jesus as the lens in which we view all Scripture through the Old Testament now. We see all of those things, Sabbath, temple, wilderness, we see all those things now through Jesus. Jesus becomes our window to see it all. So don't go into the Old Testament without Jesus. You will get really confused and really overwhelmed quickly. But when you see Jesus as the measure of all those things, you're actually going to discover some rich meaning in what Jesus embodied and what He did. And so we know that he, he went to the cross. Why? Because He was the temple. The very thing that kept us away from the presence of God and causes all the wars, all the famines, all the sickness, and all the stuff, and the, the stuff that you're disgusted that lives in you. Because sin's out there, but it's in here too, Amen. It's easy to say that, 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 but it's here too. And here's what Jesus does. He knows this, that thing that separates us from God. He comes and He fulfills the sacrifice on the cross because He's the temple. He's actually the place of heaven meeting earth. He's the place where heaven interacts with earth. He's the place which brings heaven down to earth through His perfect sacrifice. Because what Jesus did on the cross was more than just take your place. He actually defeated sin and death. That's what the Bible said. Like, he actually defeated sin and death. The very thing that keeps us outside, where they were the temple and the sacrifice and all this stuff, the work was done in Jesus. And he says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. The rest comes in Jesus. This is the the shocking claim. Because Jesus goes to the cross, he not only defeated the sin of death, he reconciled a lost people back to God. He reconciled us, defeated sin, conquered the grave. And then you know what He does on His resurrection? He comes and He says, now receive the Holy Spirit. Breathes on His disciples. Fascinating. We're told in Genesis that God breathed on mankind to make them alive, to enjoy presence with God to joy, enjoy rest with God, to enjoy peace with God. Now, Jesus shows up after his, ascension, after his resurrection, meets the disciples in the room, and He says, receive the Holy Spirit, and He goes, ah, breathes on them, symbolically showing the fact that the resurrected life of Christ that has defeated death, reconciled us back to God, is now given to you. Paul says 165 times in his writings that we're either in Christ or Christ in us, 164 times. That theology matters. Christ defeated death, defeated sin, defeated all the work, sat down on the mercy seat, the right hand of God, because everything was finished, the sacrifices were done, God's presence could be with us forever, and we are made alive in Christ. That's the whole gospel right there. That's the point. And so when Jesus in Luke is pointing, I'm Lord of the Sabbath, He's pointing, He's pointing, He's pointing as the fulfillment of all the Old Testament was working toward he fulfills. And then what he does is he says something really even more crazy, you are the temples of the Holy Spirit. You actually now are the place of God's dwelling. You are the place in which the Holy Spirit lives and dwells and you now embody the truth, the fullness of that temple and the fullness of the Sabbath because you have God with you in presence. That's why when I'm stressed out, When so much on the external is pressing to set my internal agenda, I realize that I actually am the temple of the Holy Spirit. And how many of you know that the external demands of life no longer need to set my internal agenda? They want to, and they will at times, and that's why I come back to the cross, because God's forgiveness is a one-time thing for all time, from past, present, future, But how many of you know that the truth is in this disrupted, uncertain life, the Gospels are declaring with a victory-like cry that Jesus is the Lord of the kingdom. He's taken up rightful residency on the throne. He rests because the work's done. So my rest, when I'm like this and I'm uncertain, I'm like, ah, I'm just saying, all right, God, just take control because I'm just going to learn to let you show me where I'm trusting in the wrong things. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and help me be at rest with you. For Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. And as we finish up here, this is some of the stuff he says. Matthew 11, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened. What does he say? Say it with me. I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. This is real rest, amen? Don't you reckon? That's real rest. Now how that finds its way out in your life, that's the journey you're going to have to go on. I can't keep talking, otherwise you'll be here all day. That's why I say I'm going to introduce you to the fact that Jesus is the Lord of a kingdom, and we are invited to be participants in that. Now we're going to try and find rhythms of patterning ourselves after this by doing our devotions, by coming to church, whatever it is, but making sure that it always points to Jesus. You'll become a religious nut. You'll become a Pharisee. You'll become judgmental. You will lose, you'll want to be in control. If it's not about Jesus, then it's wrong. I'm sorry, it's just the way it is. Unless it's forming you into being more like Christ, then you're reading it wrong or you're doing it wrong. Something's going on there. You're doing it because you feel like you have to. But what we do is we learn to lean in on the fact that Jesus has won the victory and that He's given us His Holy Spirit. And what does that mean to live that for real? Not just as a Christian knowledge in your head. That's the wrestle you have to make. I I can't do that for you. What does it mean to let that actually work its way out into the life when it is so uncertain, when it is so complex, where things are getting more and more challenging? To trust in the God of the universe. Psalm 62 says, Truly, my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from Him. Truly, He's my rock and my salvation. He's my fortress. I'll never be shaken. Praise God. I get shaken a lot <laughs> because that external dictates this, but I have a different place. Do you know that's what it means to be born again? Born again isn't just weird Christian language. It's this sense of, you know, when, when you don't have the revelation of Christ, you're actually blind and you don't know you're blind. It's, it's actually a, it's a startling fact, and you don't know it until you get born of the Spirit, and then you look back and you say, oh, I'm blind. I need new ways of seeing. I need new ways of doing, because the old things were actually deforming me and actually dehumanizing me and keeping me in bondage. I wasn't alive to my kingdom vocation, I wasn't awakened to purpose, but when you receive the Holy Spirit, man, I'm going to tell you something, you become awakened and then you begin to see, but then you're invited into practicing and being and walking with God. And one of the ways that we do that is by taking communion, did you know that? Communion is not just a religious thing that we do every week with our little cup, I love Pastor Greg's heart the other week when he said, I wish we could just have a big loaf of bread, because it's so much, it's so good. When I grew up in church, we ripped the bread, and as kids, would all, as soon as everyone was done, would run over and finish the bread. I don't know if that's, like, bad or not, but we did. It's really full of God's body. But it, there's something powerful about this communion thing that we're about to take, because what we're realising is the worship team's going to come up now, and they're going to play, because we're going to sing a song. You've heard me talk a lot today. But we have this invitation. Um... The thing about this is, like, we use language like submitting to the Lordship of Jesus, it can sound so, like, like I don't know, oppressive, because that's the language of the culture, but just hear something for a second. Like, submitting to the Lordship of Christ is really getting to a point where you just say, yeah, you know, I'm actually willing to put my faith in the agency of God now, because my agency, where I try and be in control, doesn't always work. And if I'm expecting that I'm going to always have the internal capacity to manage the external demands and be in control, I'm actually living an illusion. But if I can know that the external is going to happen, but that I can locate the fact that in my submission to God, that I'm actually allowing God's perfect order to come in by His Spirit and to sort the chaos and produce a peace, so that I have a different place to trust, rather than the things I've always trusted in that fail me, Um, That's the invitation, really. Sin will keep you enslaved. Sin's task, sin's job, sin's primary function, this thing we call sin, is to keep you in disorder, is to keep you blind to God's agency, to trusting in God and being impatient with that stuff. But if I've learned anything over the last three years, in the uncertainty of... (laughs) Where my income's coming from, what I'm doing day to day, from the different things, like, I'm just learning to be okay with the fact that, like, I have God's peace. If I would be obedient and, and, and follow God's call, then I can trust that God will be okay. It's why I love Jesus' words where He says, Luke 12, "'Don't be afraid, little flock. Your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom.' Sell your possessions, give to the poor, provide purses for yourselves that won't wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail. Don't be afraid, little flock. It's the Father who has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Submission to the Lordship of God is actually God's pleasing will for your life. It's it's just recognizing His agency and He gives. And so as we come to communion today, it's interesting that we've been talking about Egypt and slavery and all these kinds of things, because on the night of Jesus's I rest. He had the last supper. It's a Passover meal. And at Passover meal, they're sitting down having a meal. Oh, I look forward to that day in heaven, like where we don't just have to rip open the little cup, like we'll sit and have a meal together. And there'll be African, there'll be Filipino, there'll even be a few Aussies, I'm sure, we'll get there. But there'll be this this house of the nations gathered together, we're going to eat. But at this last meal, it was a way of them embodying the scriptures again. But now Jesus actualizes the scripture and points to himself as the fulfillment when he says this, the eating a meal. And there's four cups. And so at the start of the meal, they'll take one of the cups and it's based on Exodus chapter six. The first cup is the cup of sanctification. And they recite the promise of God that I will bring you out from the under the burden of the Egyptians. And so every part of the meal was a way of telling the story of their deliverance from captivity. They take the first cup and they drink it. Then the second cup, the cup of deliverance, I will rescue you from bondage. Jesus would have taken that cup and told the story. They would have eaten. And then after the meal, Jesus stood up and a a hush entered the space. And we're told in the scriptures that he picks up this third cup. And the third cup is the cup of redemption. And they would say, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. Jesus is promising the redemption of his people. And he takes the third cup. And this is the cup that he says, as I take this cup, you will now drink this cup in remembrance of me. Where the story was about the deliverance of God's people from Egypt, Jesus is now pointing to the fact that he has delivered humanity from bondage to sin and death. Now when we take communion, we are now becoming participants in the story. We're embodying the truth of God's Word. What's interesting is the fourth cup, the cup of praise, we're not sure if he drank it or not, because he says, I will no longer drink from the fruit of the vine until the day where I'm entering. I have it with you in my Father's kingdom. How many of you know there's a day where we will... Jesus is coming back. Jesus will return and he he will... Gather unto Himself His people, and we will eat a meal together. And I look forward to that day where Jesus has a glass of wine with me, the cup of praise, and we celebrate the fact that Jesus, it's all done. But right now, we're living in that third cup. We're remembering that Jesus redeemed us. Jesus is our rest. Jesus is our anchor point. He is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way. There is no other God. He is the God of the universe. So as we take communion today, it's not just about thinking about how bad you are and my sin and my own individual thing. It's us together breaking the bread and saying, Jesus has redeemed us. Amen?